Hi, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On the Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Background YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by my munificent co-host, Mr. Marquisco. <laughs> ah, love it. Love it. Thank you, Michael. And uh, quick reveal, I- I'm wearing the forbidden outfit. So I got the green on top, fighting Irish, have a big game this week. I'm not supposed to wear this combo with the orange pants because my wife says I look like the uh, map of or the flag of Ireland. I have the Bitcoin Citadel socks going on. Um, mm. I think it's going to be more important than ever to have a Citadel, given the macro nonsense that is going down that we'll, we'll talk about today. Um, you really need a fortress. And I think Bitcoin is, is that fortress for a portion of your wealth. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. I'd, I'd like to start talking about rates. So we had an FOMC this week. Not a whole lot of hard takeaways from it other than the higher for longer narrative, which I, I, you might object to a little bit is starting to get cemented. So we, we got no change. The, the market is still expecting one more rate hike for this year. Looking out next year, the market is still expecting cuts, but they're now expecting less cuts after. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're pricing in half a point less, uh, in 2024 now. And Powell said, I guess the, the the headline takeaway would be that a soft landing is not the Fed's baseline expectation. He also did talk quite a bit about, I know, he also did talk quite a bit. I mean, imagine if he had said that, right? <laughs> what it's, markets would it's have so done. funny. It's so yeah. funny. Yeah. So, and then the last thing I'll say is he did talk quite a bit about the Fed's balance sheet and about being serious about rolling off the Fed's balance sheet. So, Mark, any, any takeaways for you from the FOMC? I, I mean, so many. So many takeaways. I mean, you know, this idea that, I mean, one, this idea that the market still, still, after all his protestations to the to the contrary, actually believes they're going to start cutting rates. Now, not as mm. much, but they're going to start cutting rates in March. I mean, March is not that long from now, right? And um, so that, I, I just I just find the whole thing kind of interesting is, the Fed chair says something, and it's been going on for the past few years. And people are just like, yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm going to believe the opposite. And in some ways, there's, there's a directionality that's right. You know, people for seven, eight years said, Fed's going to raise rates. And, and the upward slope of the Fed futures curve was, was consistent consistently wrong for for <laughs> seven to eight years. And and then suddenly it was understated because, you know, he cranked up, you know, the knob to 11. And now they're going to be consistently wrong on this, this downward slope. And I, I, just, I just find the whole game kind of silly. But that said, I, I think there's a bunch of things that, that came out of this that, that are interesting and, and confusing in a way, right? Not two meetings ago, he was like soft landing or actually no landing, right? We're, we're, we're not even going to land this plane. We're just, we're just going to take off again. We're going to do a touch and go and, and life is good. And, and now, 
well, we can't have soft landing as our base case. Of, co- of course it's your base case. That's always been your base case. I mean, you're telling us there's me a, what? A medium landing? A, a, I mean, is this the Chuck Yeager definition? Any landing you can walk away from is, is a good landing. And if you can use the plane tomorrow, it's a great landing. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's confusing. And then the last part is rates. Rates are in free ascent. Forget free fall. <laughs> they are in free ascent. And that's kind of contrary to this idea that they're going to offload their balance sheet. So what you're telling me is you're going to sell bonds at a loss? I mean, if you acquired all these bonds at low interest rates and now you're going to sell them at high interest rates, where does that money come from? Because remember, the Fed is not federal, so they can't get it from the government and has no reserves, right? There's no, there's no, there's no there there to plug that hole. So I, I don't know. I find the whole thing kind of, kind of curious. Yeah, there's a there's a great chart here. I'm going to share my screen. The the Fed, you know, in terms of what they're actually projecting from the standpoint of inflation and unemployment, they're kind of telling two different stories a little bit or they're telling a story that isn't super possible. So looking at this is a, this is a projection of GDP unemployment rate uh, and PCE and core inflation and you know, they're having, they're talking about not having a soft landing. They're talking about GDP going up, uh, unemployment rate going down, inflation moderating while cutting interest rates at the same time. And the reason why you would presumably cut interest rates is because there's some sort of recession or, or harder landing, right? I mean, you don't just, you don't just cut interest rates when GDP is going up and unemployment is, is staying neutral. So, not ever. Like, like not ever. It, right. It's axiomatically wrong right. that, that you would do that. Right. So, I, I mean, there's, there's what the market is pricing in. There's what the Fed is telling the market. And they're not necessarily saying the same thing right now in terms of people's expectations. So well, someone's what's wrong. What's funny, too, is, is this, this chart. I, I love this chart. The FOMC projections. I talk about this all the time. They are a group actually a very large group of very highly educated people, like dozens and dozens of PhDs, like really highly educated people. And they've been making these forecasts of both GDP and inflation quarter by quarter for, I can't remember the, the number of years, but it's like 15, 18 years, whatever it is. And they are over. They remain over like 268 or 266, I lost track. That's just not possible, right? I could flip a coin and be right half the time. Right. These guys are crafting a narrative that obviously has political agendas. We'll, we'll, we'll go into a, a very interesting political agenda that someone tweeted at me uh, last night that I, I think has some legs with regard to China. Um, I, I don't know. I, I I just don't understand why you put out stuff that just makes you look stupid every well, single quarter. 
Well, isn't it? I mean, they're not explicitly, I think, if you ask them, trying to predict things. This is part of their forward guidance. Nicholas says economic projections. I know, I know, I know, I know. But they have this, they have this policy of forward guidance, right? Where when they when they put out the projections, their their aim is that they influence the market, and they know they can't one hundred percent completely control the market. But I think they're trying to drag it in in one way or another directionally. Is that not? Uh, you know what? Okay, so so they're the the Weston High School wrestling, uh, you know, philosophy where the head goes, the body follows. Right? That was my coach from from Weston High School years ago. That so what you're saying is they're pushing the head, and then you can't push it all the way, or it'll pop off. So you got to just push it in the direction that you, okay, that, that, I'll take I, This is how I sort of think about it. when I, when I used to do consulting, we, one of our projects that we would do very consistently is we would help people purchase steel, uh, like large buyers of steel. And one of the ways that we would do that is we would, ben- we would use benchmarks. So when we're pitching a new client, we'd say, Hey, this is what you're paying for steel. And here is like the baseline rate. And there would always be savings there, right? So I would get asked sometimes to help with a pitch. Hey, can you come up with a benchmark for for steel, uh, steel price, or where they where they land? And if, if I came up with something that was accurate but a little off, hey, could you actually make it so that it looks like they're paying about fifteen to twenty percent too much? And I was like, why don't we just start from there? You know, I I could save you know, all the work of actually building this bottoms up. Consulting was just like. Accounting. There's the famous joke of the guys interviewing accountants. He interviews the first one. What's what's two plus two? Four. Okay, you're out. Thank you. Mm. Second guy comes in. What what's two plus two? Four. Okay, you're out. Third gal comes in and uh, says, "What's two plus two? Says, "What number do you want it to be? You're hired. You're hired. Yeah, yeah. So I, I love it. The consulting is the same. What what, what number were you thinking? <laughs> Yes. Yes. I, I can, I can validate that for you. I can cry. Yeah. I, I actually, I'm being a little bit, I, I'm being a little bit uh, harsh on consulting here. I, there, there is an oh, element. No, I you think- can't be too harsh on consulting. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I, I, and, and I have, you know, more insight than most cause you know, I'm old and I've been around and I have friends that have been consultants and my daughter works for uh, a large, not my daughter, my grant, my daughter-in-law, sorry, my daughter-in-law mm-hmm. works for, a very large, um, recently bankrupt uh, utility, and she just and she's actually on the strategy group. So she's on the internal strategy group. She does not get paid what the McKinsey, et cetera, people are getting paid by this bankrupt company. And she's like, "But I'm the one that does the work. I gather the data. I give it to them. They give us back." what the CEO asks for, which is different than what we actually know. And then they charge us millions, plural, of dollars. That is an amazing gig. And that's why, you know, McKinsey has such a huge family office and and they pay their consultants really well. So it, it's a good gig. But anyway. It's a phenomenal gig. If you, at, at its most charitable, consulting is a group of extremely intelligent people. It's like, it's like variable rate, very high quality labor that you can bring on at any, at any one given point at its, at its worst or its least charitable interpretation. It's a really expensive insurance policy for executives to push something that they wanted to do. It's the old saying, no one ever got fired for hiring McKinsey. That is it. 
That is yeah. what it is. It is an expensive yeah. insurance policy. Actually, it's a it's a ticket to grift, but but we won't go there. It's you know it's uh, it's comp. I don't want to derail us too much here, but yeah, yeah. my the. Overall, it's, it's, I think everyone right now is a little bit undecided. You know, I consume a lot of content. I listen to a lot. I watch, read a lot of forecasts. I mean, people are dead split down the middle here in terms of, I think people generally, if I had to sum up where I think people are with regards to inflation, people are in general agreement that we are cyclically in a downturn for inflation where people are not decided. And what the, what the key question really is, is what are the, more structural or secular trends around inflation. And that's and that's ultimately the more important thing that I think you have to have an opinion on an answer. Unfortunately, it's one that's extremely hard to know. Oh, no, that, that was easy. See, that, that that's what's so funny, right? The stuff that's super easy is what people just wring their hands and, and have some consternation about. Long-term secular trends are so simple. It's just demographics. Mm. Count the number of young people. If it's a really high number, you'll have secularly rising inflation. Mm. Why is that? Well, because young people are not productive and they're not very efficient and they have to be trained. Well, how do you train them? Well, you have to borrow from your customers in the form of higher prices to train those those workers. Mm. And that's why if you look around the world at countries and regions with high uh, levels of, of youth, they have high Inflation. Now, the other secular inflation uh, indicator is dictatorship. So when you have dictators, you can, you can get high inflation. So think Argentina. Think, um, by the way, have you listened to Millet at all? The, the, the presidential candidate in Argentina? You got to no. listen to this guy. He is, he's pretty amazing. I, I'm... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm sold. I'm, you know what I, you know what I was listening to, not Argentina here, but uh, or do you say Chile or Argentina? Argentina. I was, I was listening to my that podcast that I've been shilling. Uh, the rest is history. They did a. I'm, I'm almost through the second episode on the history of Pinochet in Chile and the toppling of the Chilean government. Yeah, on nine eleven, like literally, yeah. he was what a crazy on nine. 11. Crazy huh. statistic. That's a yeah. crazy coincidence, isn't it? Yeah. So my next door neighbor, um, they're here for a year. He's teaching over at Duke. They're from Chile. And uh, the mom's actually here from uh, from Chile uh, to go to the football game next weekend. And um, I'm tempted to go over there. And, and can you tell me about, because I, I, I have a lot of curiosity about these you know, dictator stories over the years. Now she, that wasn't, that was a generation before her, but still she, she would have heard it from her parents. But the, the, the reason you have secular deflation is old people. And look, it, it is a fact that every single day for the next like 13 years, something like that, uh, 10,000 people will turn 65 in the United States and another 10,000 will turn 65 in Europe. And Japan's already 11 years ahead of us. They're, they're starting to age into the 85-year-old cohort. And you look at those places, and it is secularly a downtrend in inflation. And the only thing that's going on now, again, this, this is just the debate back and forth. Oh, but we have this, this 70s-style inflation. No, no, we don't. We had a currency devaluation, the likes of which 
we've actually never seen. Right? Mm. Think about that. The United States had a currency devaluation. We've just never seen. We printed half the money in the history of the Republic in 18 months. And now <laughs> the chairman is like, shit, that was too much. I, I got I to claw some of that back. But here's the problem. And this is going to get into the, uh, the little theory that I was talking about on China. Here's the problem. How exactly, Jerome, are you going to reduce your balance sheet? You are the buyer of last resort, the lender of last resort. Um, so you bought up all these, these bonds. Who's going to buy them from you? China stopped. Russia stopped. Japan stopped. They're actually divesting. They're, they're, they're exacerbating your problem. Mm. So who exactly is going to buy bonds? Oh, we're going to freaking stuff them into the banks. That's gone. You did that. You put them in the banks and then you went and jacked up rates and you bankrupted a whole bunch of banks, like wiped mm -hmm. them out. Why, why would you do that? You're supposed to be the banker in chief. Why, why would you bankrupt? Okay, that's a whole nother story that that's to set the stage for CBDC. You have to foment fear and distrust in the banking system. So, so the banks aren't going to buy them. So who exactly is going to buy them? Us. Mm. 65 to 85 year olds. Well, I'm not 65 yet, but, but I will be. Old people buy bonds. They don't buy green bananas and they buy bonds. And that's their only hope. And, and I've said for years, there's, there's no law yet that forces you to buy bonds in your 401k. And, you know, we've talked about this, but I believe it should be against the law. Literally, there should be a law that prohibits anyone under 65 from owning a bond in their 401k. It's the mm. dumbest investment decision you could ever make. Not there's yeah. But that, that's a pretty dumb decision. And, but they could actually, and I think they might, and there's actually been bills thought of, that would mandate that you buy government bonds in your 401ks. Be horrible. But wait a minute. If interest rates are five and a half or six, isn't that a good thing? Well, if inflation returns to its persistent decline at, you know, sub 2%, 4% real, it's not bad. It's not bad. But mm. I, I, I don't know who's going to buy the bonds from Jerome. I, I don't know who's going to do it. So yeah. good luck with that, Jay Powell. So I, I will point out actually, so foreign holdings of treasuries actually increased um, after yields. I mean, simple equation, right? <laughs> yields go up, they become more attractive. Now, the converse on the other side of the balance sheet there is the interest that the U.S. government is having to pay out is exploding and nearing a trillion dollars. But you know, people are going to buy the bonds if you jack the, the risk-free rate total up total foreign increase, you have to break it out and, and double check because this, this has happened before. Um, 
every once in a while, you'll find in that total number, these odd things like Belgium is buying a lot of bonds. Like Belgium, Belgium doesn't have any money. It ain't Belgium, right? It's some Saudi prince or something, you know, running it through the, the ECB. Uh, or, you know, the UK, that's my other favorite, because that, that is actually, that's really the Saudi money that goes through the UK or African money goes, African dictatorship money goes through, uh, London. So you got to actually look at that because if, if Japan is net sellers and China's net sellers, those are the big dogs and Russia is not really that important, but they're net sellers. Um, the net buyers and, and, and this is the other interesting thing about this is if your plan is to just screw over your, your enemy, right? Who borrowed a lot of money at low interest rates, you, you could do that. And that's what this, this guy was positing about China is that we are trying to exacerbate the collapse of, of the Chinese real estate market to put pressure on China. It's an interesting theory. I mean, it is. Um, but it's interesting. You look at Evergrande stock, for example. It's rebounded off the bottom, like really, really hard. I mean, should should have gone to zero based on the data. But like Citigroup, same thing. Citigroup should have gone to zero, but it didn't. Too inconvenient. I... You know, I think a lot of people, when you talk about this sort of sovereign debt currency doom loop, you have people that are talking on different time frames, and so they're sort of whistling past each other in the night. So, yeah. Yeah. All, so who I will, I don't know. I've referenced this book. It's on it's on my bookshelf here somewhere. But Market Wizards, you can go back to 1989 or whenever that was published, and people are talking about the same stuff you and I are talking about. Some thirty, you know, forty years. There's nothing new in earlier. this world to that. Tech nothing point. new in this world, and 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 they were way early. So these people that say, "Hey, I've been hearing this my entire career," BRICS, sovereign debt crisis. People have been saying this for forty years. This is nothing new. I'm really sympathetic to that view. If I had been hearing that for forty years, I'd be, I'd be annoyed with it as well. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think people who point out how different the U.S. situation is are right because of the privileged position that we have in the world, but. At, at an, on another on another very real realm, what you're sort of proposing is a perpetual motion machine, and I just don't see any examples in history of this working out on a long time frame. On a long time, on a multi hundred uh, well, year time frame. Point. There, there are none, and and we talked about this before too. In the history of the world, there've been 775 paper currencies. Yeah, right. Three quarters don't exist; like they're gone. I mean, there are countries that have come and gone. There are governments that have come and gone. There are regimes. And anything, look, just this country. We had Confederate dollars gone, right? Yeah. We had Texas dollars. Texas had their own money for mm. a period of almost 20 years gone. So it it does happen that you get these, these periods. Um, but you're probably, I love, I, I love your choice of word there. Uh, perpetual motion machine. I mean, it, it doesn't work. And the point that no one's talking about, I don't know why they're not talking about it is the interest burden. The interest burden of the U S government is reaching a level 
where it really is unattainable, let alone unsustainable. It's unattainable because government tax receipts are actually falling. See, this is the weird thing, right? If we're in this expansion that everybody's talking about, normally tax receipts go up. And, and that makes sense, right? If, if companies are doing better and individuals are doing better and, and everybody's spending money and buying stuff, then tax receipts go up. Mm-hmm. But why are tax receipts going down? What are they going down relative to? Because there was a crazy peak, I would guess, in 2021 when we turned on the infinite money tap. So is it going down relative to the prior trend or going down relative to it's just, 21? It's just, I mean, it's, it's going down absolutely. And it mm-hmm. actually, I, I believe... Is, is negative. Like, I think it's a year-over-year change chart. And to your point, there was a spike where, yeah. where they went up because people, you know, were giving back the money that the government gave to them, so to speak. Um, but now it's, it's absolutely collapsing. And I think, I think it's the third fastest decline you know, again, you can go back to the previous really bad recessions, 73, uh, I think it was 73, 83, 94, 73, 84, 94, um, 2001, which wasn't really that bad. That was a a mini one. And then 2008. And I think, I think the the Kings are 73 and, and 2008. And I think this one is like in third place. So that, is weird, right? That is just, just, just anomalous. And you know, Kirill Sokoloff, who's, who's one of my favorite people mm, on Kirill's great. Right? Yeah. yeah 13 D research. I mean, I love the guy. He's, he's just, he's, he's amazing, right? He's just a really interesting person, really interesting. And he's a seer. And, and he says, look, I spend all my time on the anomalies, right? If, if it's, if it's, if it's observable and it's normal, or observable and on trend, yeah, whatever. Let someone else spend their time. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old, they can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. I want the anomalies. Give me the anomalies. Give me the things that don't make sense. And, you know, it's an anomaly the government tax receipts are declining during a quote-unquote expansion. It's an anomaly that you could have GDP rising, interest rates rising, and the Fed cutting. That would be a massive anomaly. Mm. So that one has I, I want, but that's what they're projecting. Yeah, I, I want to zoom in a little bit and talk more about the the impact and what the market is thinking about some of these these changes in rates. So just looking at a couple of different measures, I'm just going to share my screen and I'm going to give credit to the Daily Shot, 
you guys are the best. Whoever puts together these newsletters, uh, you really do assemble a lot of really good information. All right. So let's just walk through the, some of the immediate inter, uh, re- reaction here to, to what happened at the FOMC. So basically the, the headlines, right, in, in the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg's of the world, et cetera, were higher for longer. The market is digesting that. Markets were down. The S&P was down just under 1%. NASDAQ was down about 1.5%. Who knows? That's you know a pretty moderate move. Um, I guess we'll see. The VIX, while it's still in, historically pretty low, it did jump um, a little bit. Same with credit spreads. Again, credit spreads low. Don't mean to suggest that they're anywhere near a, a place where we'd be concerned about that, but they did jump after the FOMC. Where I think it is pretty interesting is the the yield curve here, which is so two-year treasury hit a a high since 2006, right? So just over 5%, 5.18%. The 10-year as well, this chart is- Has there ever been a better cup and handle chart in history? I mean, <laughs> look at that thing. <laughs> I, the cup and the handle. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty beautiful. Um, and and uh, that the, the ten year as well. These these numbers are just a little bit outdated, by the way. So the, it it already did the the ten year kissed and just went above four and a half percent. Got to give a shout out to Nick Glinsman who called that very accurately um, on an episode of On the Margin about a month or a month and a half ago. I think I think. Uh, just a couple of other things to to be aware of is real yields are also climbing. Yeah, and I've heard this sort of theory that, well, why the Fed has been raising rates? Why is nothing broken? That's amazing. And partially, we have had negative for a long time when the Fed was raising rates, we still had negative real yields. So we've been in positive real yield territory for some period of time, not a super long period of time, but you know that could help explain things. And then finally, we've got the dollar. Um, on a on a tenth weekly gain, we had Brent Johnson on the program uh, talking about where he thinks the dollar is moving this week. So I don't know, Mark. Any it, it you know relatively muted reactions. I, I guess you do have the the beginnings forming of sort of a, a more risk off narrative here, right? Dollar up, yields up, uh, term premium compressing. Uh, I mean, what, what do you? Look, you know, it's it's a it's a shit show. <laughs> the opposite yeah. of this show, right? This is a great show. Much better than that other show that Blockworks has. I can't remember the name of it. I don't right? remember we we won't even, we won't talk about it. Yeah. Um, but uh, as long as we beat them, I'm happy. Um, so look, we are on track to have the first back-to-back losses in the U.S. bond market in history. Mm. Just let that, let that hang there for a second. In history, we're talking 140 plus years of history, never had back-to-back down bonds. The ag, the broad bond index, is now down 2.5%. Long bonds, almost down 10%. So TLT. Here's the interesting thing, though. So gold, despite, and you know, we had this amazing panel, and you got to give us more time by the way, that's my only complaint. only complaint about permissionless, which was amazing, unbelievably amazing. But I could listen to Urian for 40 minutes and I could listen to Jim for 40 minutes. And I'm just there for, you know, to increase the age cohort. But um, we should have at least had 80 minutes. And no, I'm just kidding around. Um, I know it's, you got to fit a lot of stuff in. But, um, you know, Urian talked about this, this thing that, you know, real yields are usually good for gold. Gold's still being spoofed. 
I mean, it's basically flatlined. It's up about 5%, but it's basically been up 5% since almost the first week of the year. Um, Bitcoin, huh? Bitcoin's up a lot, like, like a lot, a lot. So that's interesting. And if you bought it in the only way you can buy it is as an individual investor directly on, on the exchange, GBTC, you made a lot, a lot. It's up 120% because the discount is closing because people realize there's a chance, I don't think a high chance, but there's a chance that that gets converted to an ETF and that discount goes away. But, but here's the problem. NVIDIA, down 20%. Mm. 20% in the last four or five weeks. That's, that's a lot. And those people that, you know, bought on the AI-induced euphoria, they're going to lose a lot of money. Um, Amazon has been just getting pounded here. Um, I mean, it went up a lot and it's, it's up a lot for the year, but in the last you know, three or four days, it's just getting pounded. So yeah. it's, and it is up a lot. I mean, it's up 50% um, for the, for the year, but over, I mean, up for the, for the, for the year to date, but over the past year, it's only up 10% because it, it went down a lot. And here's the interesting thing. Um, shout out to Mr. Wonderful. Three and a half years ago, Mr. Wonderful called me an idiot on CNBC live. It was was great. He's like, you're an idiot because I said that the Fang Man stocks were going to be dead money for a decade. You know, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, et cetera. We're going to be dead money for a decade. And I'm just, just one third of the way through. We're three and a half years through. I'm winning. Amazon, dead flat. Meta, down. I mean, look look at all the charts. They're 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 dead money. So there's no company good enough you can't mess up by paying too much. And that's what happened. And I think it was Jim, might have been Urian, but I think it was Jim who said, no, it was Urian. No, it's no, it was Jim. It was Jim who said, look, you've had this weird thing where despite the fact that rates have risen materially, the earnings multiple went up five points. Yeah. Five points. That's completely illogical. Now you could say the, the only, the only argument you could make is, well, earnings are rising faster. Actually, that's not what the data says. Oh, but it's coming. And the estimates are rising. They're, they're not that much better. Long rates. Long rates are telling us that we're going to have this massive recovery. Okay. That's actually, that's the only thing you could say that I will accept. When long rates rise, that is historically an indication that uh, future economic activity is going to be better. Unless, unless you have a supply-demand problem. That's the problem. Mm, we yeah. have a massive supply-demand problem in the bond market. We don't have enough buyers. When you don't have enough buyers, what happens to the price? Falls. Yields rise. So I'm going to argue it's not uh, causal. It's reactionary that 
it's not that interest rates are forecasting this massive recovery and everything's going to be great. Just not enough buyers for bonds. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, I've always looked at it as a supply demand problem as well. Um, but I, one thing that I, I would be curious to get your opinion on, and I, I want to maybe conclude this discussion of rates and move on to Bitcoin and have maybe a little bit of a, a friendly debate with you here or, or put some views out. But what, you know, a sell off in, in long term trade. I, am a nerd. I love, I loved, I was captain of my debate team in high school. I, I've been told people, people have told me many times throughout my life, well, you just, you think you're right. And it's like, of course I think I'm right. That's that. I, that's I'm, life. Why would I say, why would I say something if I didn't think I was right? I mean, co- but, convince me that I'm wrong. Let's have it. Let's have a, a dialogue and debate in search of truth. In fact, it's my, can my, my 12 year old Kind of reminds me of you in, in many ways, right? He's, yeah, he's very, very, very bright, very energetic. But he actually made us buy the other day a little a game called Debatable. You, sh- you should buy it. And it's, it's basically these little cards that have two views. And you're supposed to debate. And then people judge. And then you change roles. And um, so we did it the other night. And uh, it was hilarious. Between, so it was my son versus me. So a 12 year old versus me and my wife is the judge that just did not go well. Cause she went with him every time. I'm like, no, I clearly won that debate. <laughs> I'm sure uh, she might've been a little biased there, but Mark, if you had to guess, so TLT, by the way, is the, is an iShares ETF that tracks 20 bonds that are 20 years plus in duration. You want to guess what the peak to trough drawdown is on the TLT? Oh, this year, uh, 21%. I'm not, not, well, I was like just over, like since it started declining in oh, oh, 21. Oh, okay. Since it started declining, um, it's like 45%. Yeah. You're, you're very close, about 40%. So I mean, long duration is just getting taken to the woodshed right now. And as, as, Long-term yields continue to rise. That's going to continue to happen. Anything that doesn't flow, you know, spew cash flows is going to get hit. Think about what you just said, right? Bonds, the safest thing in theory that you can own, you lost half your money. Yeah. That's like like a small cap stock. And, And granted, look, that's because the move from 100 to 130 was totally illogical. That was a mad scramble for yield in the last death throes of the financial repression regime, where, you know, at that point, uh, there were negative interest rates on $20 billion of bonds around the world. You had to pay the bank to take your money. Yeah, that's nuts. It's like the whole world was was imploding and, and people were like, I just, I'm just going to buy long duration treasuries. And- and again, that was the plan because we were spending all this money for the wars and we had to sell the bonds. Well, now you have a problem. Nobody wants to buy them because the price is falling because you started raising rates. And as I said, I, I still believe this is all because we shifted from a regime that was designed to save the bank's balance sheets Remember, the Fed only exists for the banks. Doesn't exist for you and me, doesn't exist for the president, doesn't ex- it exists for the banks. 
It is owned by the banks. It is controlled by the banks. It is the banker's bank. Its job is to enrich the bankers, full stop. From 1607, when the Rothschilds formed the first one, to the Bank of England in the 1800s, to the Fed in 1913. Sole job. And they're good at it. They concentrate wealth in bankers' hands. So they had to bail out the banks after the 2008 debacle. Okay, Had to get the balance sheets fixed. Well, then it's time to make money again. So we've got to expand the NIMS. So let's raise rates. And they don't give a shit about all the other collateral damage. It's like this war on China. If it's true that we're staying higher for longer to try to attack Chinese real estate developers, if that were true, and yet we're destroying the lives of innocent human beings here in America, right? People who can't afford to buy a house, they can't move. That's bad. That's that's dumb. But when you weaponize, you know, the risk-free rate, which is kind of funny when you say it that way, but that's what they've done. They've weaponized the risk-free rate and you eviscerated, you vaporized 50% of the wealth in people's hands that they had when they owned TLT. Yeah. It's a pretty nuts peak to trough draw down there. It's supposed to be something that's very safe. I, I did just to present a, a, a minor counterpoint here. I, I went to an investor event here in New York this week and I heard the chairman of an extremely large, very successful private equity fund speak. Also one of these guys who sat on the boards of, you know, Federal Reserve local uh, branches and stuff like that. So very, you know, you, I don't want to out this person, but, um, you know, he knows what he's talking about. And he actually had a, a slightly different uh, view from from you, Mark. So I want to shocking, shocking yeah. that an insider yeah. of that organization would have a different view. But I, I, I am all ears. Well, well, he, he shared he shared some of your views as well. So here's what I'll the the prognosis and the way that he framed it was: Look, the the fight for inflation just to anchor people is about halfway done. Right? We've we've moved interest rates. They sort of stabilize like. The 9%, that was just sort of a, a, a peak, but we've really moved interest rates down from about 6% to about 3 3.5%. You know, we still have that last 1.5% to go to get to the Fed's target. Inflation from 6 Yeah, inflation, inflation, inflation. And and he likened it to a diet in the same way that it's easier to lose the first 10 pounds. Uh, the last five is actually much harder than the first 10 or whatever it is. That was the, the sort of view. And the question ultimately was, all right, there's the R star, which the Fed talks about a lot, which is wherever the equilibrium is, the yep. economy. Yep. I, I, but there, there's another important measure, which is I star, which is where does the natural rate of inflation fall? And he had a slightly different view from you that actually we're in a, a period of secular inflation. And the, the, the idea there being, I, I, this is where I, I, this is what I've also thought too. In, if I had there's so there's the demographics argument, which I understand, but another huge driver of deflation for me has just been borrowing from low cost labor pools around the world. And that that is a trend that is reversing. And that was that was the view. Now, where he where he agreed with you is you know, he kind of went on a little bit of it. He was speaking with another someone who was kind of an academic. So this was a funny statement to make. But he was like, none of these people who sit on the Fed, they've never taken a company public. You know, they're just, they've been in academia all their lives. They don't understand markets and was generally pretty critical of the institution and sort of the, the DC apparatus. Yep. But that was the view. So what, what would you say to, to that? Maybe to just present a counterexample before we move on to Bitcoin. Um, 
I should probably think I know who you're talking about. And, and I have massive respect for him. Um, and, and even though we sound like we disagree, we actually don't. We just disagree on nomenclature. I, I don't believe any of, of this thing that shows up as, as inflation, like house prices rising and, and food prices rising and rest, you know, services price. I don't believe that's inflation. I don't, to, to me, inflation happens when there's excess demand for limited supply of a good or service. That ain't what's happening. It's just, we're destroying the money. It's the only way out. The government got overly indebted. They made promises. They're, they wrote checks their body can't cash, you know, like Maverick in, in the first movie. And that's the problem is we are devaluing the currency. And I agree. That is a, that is a systemic secular trend. So I guess if, if we want to get all Keynesian and say that Milton Friedman is right, that inflation is always and forever a monetary phenomenon, and therefore that is what inflation is, Yusko. Okay, fine. I'm, I guess, you know, he's got a Nobel Prize. I don't, but I, I'm a, I actually want to stick to my guns that there's a huge difference between naturally rising prices because there's excess demand for, for goods as, you know, human beings are, are uh, buying them versus governments printing fiat currency out of thin air to devalue it. I, I just don't think they're the same. And actually, I'm going to stick with that. So I, I think we probably agree with just a nomenclature difference. All right. Let's talk about Bitcoin. He's here. a giga brain, by the way. He's built uh, really smart. Yeah. 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 He's, he's, and he's, yeah. I really I, enjoy I hate people like that, right? You know, rich, smart, handsome, talented. It's like, leave some for the rest of us. You know, I have a sort of a heuristic that I've developed actually over the years of interviewing lots of people and talking to some of these people. And I, it's very tempting to think that some people will get on programs and they'll go, they'll sound like a gigabrain, right? There's all these complicated models yeah. and theories yeah. and yeah. you're like struggling to listen and understand. Some of the smartest people, most successful people I've interacted with do not talk like that. They're very simple. They're very just simple in their, in their mind frame and approach. And it's usually well-reasoned and logic, but it's, it's a, I think it's a really good heuristic. If you, if, if it takes someone 20 minutes to under like explain, I, I just, it's usually not right. I don't know. Look, if you can't explain it literally so a fifth grader can understand it, then you don't understand it yourself. And, yeah. and to your point, the people, and, and again, I, I've been very lucky, right? I had a job for 30 plus years before I became a venture capitalist that I got paid to talk to the smartest people in the world. Like, yeah. like multiple Nobel laureates who managed money and, and the smartest giga brains at Goldman Sachs and every other massive firm. And without fail, the worst offenders were the people that wanted you to believe they were smart because they talked in jargon and they were demeaning in terms of, oh, well, you couldn't possibly understand this. So let me explain it to you. And then they don't explain it. They, they just talk more jargon. And you know, I won't out him either, but there was a very famous Nobel laureate who was always super tan. That was the worst. I mean, this guy was just so 
horrible about this. And it's like, dude, you, you actually sound dumb. You get, you get to a point where there's just so much blather coming out. You just, you just sound dumb. And there was a woman, I think I've talked about her before, that was a, a manager for, for Yale. It was like her thing. She would, she would go until she broke you, until you just finally said, you know, I just don't understand. She's like, ah, I win. Like, no, you lost because now I'm not investing because you're an idiot. And, but yeah, they're the smartest people in the world. They sound like they're talking to, to a fifth grader. Their yeah. friend, or the kids, you know? Yeah. And I don't mean fifth grader like talking down to you. They're just, anyone could understand it. Yeah, I agree. And the, uh, the highest compliment I ever get, and I don't want to pat myself on the back, but it, it literally just happened to me, is you know, I, was, I was giving a talk at a uh, thing called the Bull City Summit, right? trying to be South by Southwest yeah. here in, in North Carolina. And um, we got a long way to go. But, but it was a fun event. And this, you know, one of the, the guys who was the setup crew uh, came up to me and said, you know, I really enjoyed that. That's awesome. That's that's what it's all about. Because he's not in the business. He wasn't there to listen to the talk. He was there to set up these giant, you know, things. And uh, so, yeah, that was that, I, I could I could I could understand that. That and that's that's good because that's that's what it's all about. I agree. All right, I want to I want to get into talking a little bit about Bitcoin here, and this is going to be this is going to be a little bit of a debate. And some some folks are probably going to be aware of this debate debate. Some folks are going to be less aware of this debate. And I want to just caveat this by again saying I'm a huge fan of Bitcoin. It is still the thing that I own the most of. I am a, a huge, and I come at this from the standpoint of a supporter. None of these networks within crypto are perfect. Every He's one of them- coming at it from a place of love, y'all. I'm coming, coming at, at it from it a place of love and, and love. genuine understanding. So so there is, there is an emerging debate within- Bitcoins is actually not an emerging debate that's been going on for years, but it is starting to to reach a more mainstream audience, which is the something that's broadly called the security budget debate within Bitcoin. So, for those for those who are uh, maybe not as in the weeds of how Bitcoin is secures itself, there are two ways that miners make money within Bitcoin. There's something called a block subsidy, which is the Bitcoin inflation schedule, and then there are transaction costs. So miners get uh, percentage for actually, you can basically pay to, to there's a, a variable fee that you as a user can pay. It's basically a tip to miners to include your transaction uh, quicker. So, you know, some of that fees will, th those fees will go to, to miners. So the, the important thing I think to understand is that the vast majority today of what miners get paid for, for validating the network is not from transactions. It's from the, uh, it's from the block subsidy, block which is block yeah, rewards. the block rewards. Over time, this is what a halving is, those block rewards are getting cut in half to a point where I think in 2140, there are going to be no more block rewards. Mm -hmm. This is a problem because if transaction fees haven't gone up enough to compensate miners in that period of time, then miners will stop validating the network and then Bitcoin could theoretically die at that point or become very insecure to an attack. Now, the mental framing that I would lay out for folks is hash power is sort of a proxy for miners have to commit collateral in the form of computing equipment in order to validate the network. They are putting up expensive collateral in the form of computing equipment. The fact that they're able to process 
these, these intense computational efforts is proof to the network that they've expended a certain amount of money and they're getting paid for that service. Yep. That is the model. Now, for me, when, when you talk about something like the security budget, that is the total amount that miners are getting paid. And if that goes down and down and down, then the network becomes less and less secure. So the question is, how do we deal with that? I'm thinking about it this week, actually, because Nick Carter, someone sniped like a photo of him. So you know, he's been talking hilarious. about this debate for years. So hilarious. And, and he's like, this is a problem. And here are some of the solutions. The, the solution that people really don't like but I would argue is on the table, is creating tail emissions, which would actually break the 21 million hard cap supply of Bitcoin, but it would ensure uh, a larger security budget for miners and arguably keep the network safer. So Mark, what, what do you think about when we're talking, like, what is your viewpoint on this, on this debate? I'm probably still in the, uh, the market will adjust in time, right? You know, we have 120 years. Um, to, to adjust, but, but, you know, it's not, that's not forever. Um, so I feel like the market will adjust. That's the summary. The, the meat, we're going to need a whole nother show because there's a whole bunch of factors that are unknowable and are, and are going to be interesting to watch. So, so one is the compute itself, the computing power changes. Right. We had, you could do it on your laptop in 2009, literally, and then you need a desktop and then you needed a, a bigger server blade and, and then you needed a GPU, or, you know, kind of powerful system, not GPUs, GPUs are for ETH, but, but you needed a, a, a more spec specific system. And then they created these ASICs. Well, okay. So the computing power, uh, has to grow. And as computing power evolves, historically, the cost has come down. So if that trend continues and we get more Moore's law, you know, it's possible that the the reduction in in block rewards would would be okay. And we wouldn't have to create that many transaction fees because the miners wouldn't have to expend as much collateral uh, because the chip costs and the, the miner costs go down. Then you got the whole issue of, of electricity, right? The biggest variable cost for all the miners is well, what do you pay for electricity? And people who went early days and did hydro and locked in, you know, five or six cents thought they were doing great. Yeah, that's, that's okay. But, but then it became less okay. So people who, who locked in two or three cents felt, felt really good. Well, what if you could get one cent, you know, with the big solar grid or something? Uh, or my favorite, how about negative cost energy? Like flare gas, right? You actually get paid to take the flare gas and recapture it in a turbine and power miners. So, and Saudi has... I don't even know how many tons, but gazillion, we'll use just gazillion for a large number, tons of flare gas that they could recapture. So the, the, the capability to create negative cost energy mining is, now that would put a whole bunch of miners out of business, but you know, so be it, that's capitalism. Um, 
So I, I think it's it's complicated. Now, I also am a big believer that free and open markets, of which Bitcoin is, as as are other you know protocols, um, not just Bitcoin. Uh, although I I I partial proof of work. I think proof of work is the best. Um, but uh, I think that the transaction fees will be sufficient. And I think they will grow proportionally as the Bitcoin blockchain is used for an increasing number of things. Ordinals and storing digital artifacts is, is a great example. I mean, ordinals allow high value assets to be stored on the most secure chain. Well, why does that matter? And if you think about owning things. If I own a bunch of Pokemon on my Pokemon game, someday I'll own them instead of Niantic owning them. Um, but someday I'll, I'll get to own my special Pokemon. And and Colleen and I had had a great conversation about this down at, at Permissionless and uh, from, from Brevin Howard. She was at CMT before. But she and I play Pokemon Go together. And But it sucks that we do all this work converting time into value and then the value sits on their servers. We would like to have those things. Well, for those, I probably don't need to pay a lot to store them somewhere. So I'm probably happy to store them anywhere. But I have a couple NFTs and and other digital assets that I I want on Bitcoin. So I'm happy to pay a transaction fee to, to get them stored on the most secure, most valuable chain. And Danny Huep, I mean, Danny Yang, he's at Huep, uh, uh, talks about this from on-chain monkeys is the highest value assets in the world are going on Bitcoin. They just are. And that I think is, is a, a use case for the, uh, the, the block storage because um, blockchains are very efficient, permanent, immutable, beautiful ledgers. And as we migrate everything to digital, think this, this is what's really hard to wrap your head around that we're not going to have centralized storage houses of paper assets. We're not going to have centralized databases of electronic assets controlled by centralized organizations. That that just isn't going to happen. So can I poke at some of those things? Oh, sure. Because I think this is, yeah. so in terms of that argument of the, co- the cost of hardware for compute going down, I've heard that a lot, but that I don't think that makes the network more secure. What gives Bitcoin its security as a network is the cost of the collateral that you would have to post to attack the network. So for instance, let's just use a super hyperbolic example. 20 years from now, let's say you could purchase a computer for $1 that would secure, that could produ- was capable of producing the hash rate of the entire Bitcoin network today. Would that make it more safe? If there was one, if you could buy a computer for $1 that would basically have the entire hash yeah, power. No, no, but, then- but here's the thing. It, it's, not, it's not the cost of the hash power. It's the power of the computer. So hashing cannot be unhashed by equivalent tech. You need something better. So you need quantum, for example. That, that's the one that everyone talks about. So the, the, secure, the security tech can be 
super cheap, but using that same tech, you're not going to unhash it. You gotta, you gotta spend more. Now, to your point, you spend, that's what I'm. If, but that's what if, I'm saying. If the cost right? of that goes down equivalently, right? If I could assemble enough computing power to un to attack, and what an attack is, is think. Let's just use an even number. So let's say there's ten thousand nodes. So you got to hack in ten minutes. There's a ten minute window for a block. You got to hack 5,001 of the machines in a 10-minute window simultaneously to change the block and steal the, the, the bounty. It's a pretty daunting challenge. And people have tried, obviously. And here's the crazy thing. People have been trying that since 2009, right? Every day, people are trying to figure out how they can hack Bitcoin and steal all of it and every other crypto. Um, but there's not been one fraudulent transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain in the you know 14 plus years it's been been up. So I hear you, but I and, and maybe this is where I'm wrong. I don't think you can use the same compute to unlock the cryptography. It's not about unlocking, it's not about unlocking the cryptography. It's just about having like the hash power of the network is relative, right? Probabilistically, right? If you have 50% of the hash power in the network, then you're making 50% of the blocks. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin, the way that it's consensus work, it, it, it responds to the, the leader, right? There are reorgs in Bitcoin that happen on a pretty somewhat yeah. regular basis, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So it's actually, you can more quickly make fraudulent blocks that the, that, that consensus algorithm will think is the winner. And Overall, like just just staying out of the weeds, just staying out of the weeds for a second. Like overall, it's this: the security budget is what what the Bitcoin network pays out to its miners relative to the collateral that you've posted. If the value of the collateral that you have that you post to the network goes down and down and down, the network is becoming less secure. Now, the other thing is people talk about the difficulty adjustment. Bitcoin has this really elegant structure built into yeah. it where when the hash power decreases, which is the overall amount of collateral and compute that is going towards the network, they make it easier to mine a block. So right. the argument, and this is the way that it's worked forever, is that when the hash power of the network goes down and the amount of collateral that is securing the network goes down, they make it easier to mine blocks and that brings on more compute, more hash power, the network is more secure. The thing is, Overall, it just imagine there's this like pool of rewards, which is largely coming from the block subsidy today, and it's mm -hmm. being split amongst this network of computers all over. Yep. What the difficulty adjustment can do is dynamically adjust how many computers that reward is being spread across, yep. but it cannot impact the size of the overall pool. So if that pool right. is going down, down, and down, the difficulty adjustment is not a long-term solve for that. The other thing, because I also am very, very bullish on ordinals, but let me just show you a a chart here. So ordinals, when they launched, the inscriptions, the the amount of inscriptions over time has been going up, but the amount of fees that got paid are going are basically peaked and have been staying consistently relatively low. Yeah. And the reason for that is because ordinals originally generated fees because there was sort of this, like you see this in NFT manias in in, in Ethereum. People think the value is going to go up. People yeah. pay a lot to get in early, so you're tipping your the block builders who are the miners uh, to 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 go first. 
now there's less of a there's less of FOMO. So people are like, yeah, you know what? I'll just wait a couple blocks. I don't really feel like tipping, and Agreed. that's fine. So they're not really generous. Although they are filling up, there's a, there should be a chart here somewhere of the amount of. Um, uh, yeah, the block space on Bitcoin has been much more full, yeah. but, and, and the large part of that is due to ordinals, but it is not generating more transactions fees. It's generating some more transaction yeah. fees. Yeah, but, but not, not, not as more, more as, as you'd like to see. So no, that's fair, but, yeah. but we're, we're early. Right. And, um, I think having this debate is really important and having the discussion is, is really important. Now the punchline Right where I think you know you and I probably differ, and again, differences. Two people always have the same opinion. One is unnecessary, and I like mm-hmm. hanging out with you, so we can't agree all the time. <laughs> That's true. Um, so I don't think there's any need to ever even consider changing the the 21 million cap. You would argue uh, that we should. I just in real time made a slight change to my view which is probably heresy and people will yell at me, but um, given that uh, there are lost or stolen coins, I might be willing to uh, say we could replace those, right? And keep it at 21 million. Always keep it at 21 million. Um, I haven't really thought about that, but I just thought about it in real time. And, you know, as Satoshi uh, emailed about this in the early days, he said, consider them a gift to the community. Mm. Like, yeah, okay, fine. Um, I don't love that. It's, it's, it's actually better than, like, if you lose paper money, it's gone. Unless, unless somebody finds it, then it's a gift to them. But if it, if it literally gets, goes down the sewer and it's gone, you lost it. No one else gets it. Here... If, if it gets lost, theoretically, the total value gets spread over a smaller number. So the value goes up and, and everyone wins. I, I, I could be persuaded that adjusting the algorithm to go on until we get to 21 million, that, again, I'll have to think more about that, but that, that might be the only thing I'd, I'd break my, my, my cap for. Yeah. Now I, so I've actually asked a couple of, I'm also keep in mind that I am not deep in this. I haven't, I've only thought about it a little bit, but there, I have gone back and forth with, there's a guy, uh, James, uh, checkmate who works over at Glassnode. Um, he, I, I'll, I'll link these in the, in the show notes. Cause I've been a little bit more curious about how the fee market actually works on Bitcoin and what people who would be, yeah. would not be aligned with my way of thinking or thinking about this. And by the way, I don't even know if that's the right solution. There are alternative solutions. But uh, Checkmate and Pierre Rochard also uh, responded to me about something. So I'll link both of their responses in the show yes. notes. I, what I still can't get over is, again, just like we got into some of the technicals here and it's not super important. If, you, if you're a nerd and want to geek out on this stuff, that's great. But if you just want a very high level, like this is my framework, the overall security budget, what makes Bitcoin secure is the cost of attacking the network, Right. And what secures that is it's very expensive to post collateral in order to have an influence over the network. So right. as the cost of uh, you know mining, actually, I don't, I don't think the hardware reduction actually makes the network more secure because it actually lowers the cost for an attacker as well. Now, what could happen is although transaction fees are relatively small today, the price of Bitcoin could go so high that that's still 
um, you know, that's still attractive for miners to secure the network. But and that's that's, that's actually what I believe, right? And that's now you know it's amazing. Everyone's one upping each other. So you know, there's a whole bunch of us that have said, you know, 150, 200k. That that's logical. Um, given, you know, gold equivalence is 250K, right? Meaning the monetary value of gold, the 5 trillion, 10 trillion would be, we double that, but five, the monetary, but then, you know, Kathy Wood came out and said, no, four and a half million. And then um, Sailor came out and said, no, 5 million. And then somebody came out and said, no, 10 million. I'm like, okay, great. You want, you want clicks. Great. Um, but yeah, there, that, that is the solution, right? Is that we've, to date, we've had this amazing phenomenon that every having what, what should happen, right? Does happen. Meaning when I say should, meaning if, if we have a certain number of miners that are paying a certain amount for electricity and machines, and suddenly the block rewards that they're getting gets cut in half, half of them are out of business, unless the price rises. Mm. And actually what's happened in every previous halving, the price doubled. And then it went higher from there because people got FOMO and levered up and, but the price actually doubled. So that's why I say if, if you know, the Tim Peterson Metcalf's model is 50K, it's like 52 or 50, let's just use 50. If that's 50 and the halving occurs next April, that doubles the fair value to 100 and we have to migrate to 100. Well, then the, the next halving, right? Every halving up to this point has 10X, the total value of the network. And so it adds a zero. So we went from 10 to 100, 100 to 1,000, 1,000 to 10,000, this one 10,000 to 100,000. The next one would be 100,000 to a million. That's that's a big number. Now, at some point, we'll change to Satoshis and we won't talk about million dollars. We'll talk about smaller amounts. But um, I, I do think it's an interesting thing. The, the thing that I, I still come back to on, on security, it's the genius of the the code, which is the moment anyone does a 51% attack, the value disappears. So what you just stole, what you spent all that money on. Now to your point, am I, if, if I've spent billions to run the risk that the day after I do it, it goes to zero and I've stolen nothing of value versus if I have to spend 10 grand, I might try that. And, and that's probably an extreme number, but if the price of compute keeps falling, your, your ability to try the 51% attack to your point, uh, does, does become doable for some actors, but I believe, and, and it's just my belief, the moment someone did that, the moment one block was wrong, it's done. And don't you think there'll be lots of even nation states? No incentive to steal. Well, what if your incentive was just that you wanted to see Bitcoin destroyed or like, let's envision a a a future. That's a different incentive. Let's envision a future though, where there's a deep and liquid derivatives market, for instance, on CME and you just short Bitcoin. So you perform a 51% attack, destroy people's, (laughs) destroy people's confidence in it, and then just short. 
uh, you know what? That sounds like a, a great James Bond uh, movie, right? The guy that was short the airplanes and he blew up the airplane. That, that, yeah. Um, okay. I don't, I mean, it like a lot of this depends on if, if, if Bitcoin is successful to the degree that we talk about, it, and I hope that it will be as well you would imagine incumbents will be even less pleased with it than it is today, namely the US. And it depends on the social sentiment, right? So the James Bond film that you're, is, is one of, is my personal favorite, by the way. I know people will at me about this, but Casino Royale, I think is my, my favorite James Bond movie. And yeah. they, the, the terrorist in that movie, Le Chief, he, he goes short some airline stock yes. and then plans a terrorism attack. Yes, like exactly. that would be the most obvious thing in the world, right? You'd go immediately to jail. Um, and that would be, but, but, but um, that would be, you know, you could say that, well, you're, if you perform a 51% attack on Bitcoin, that's market manipulation if you've gone short and that's illegal. But George Soros did something, you know, I mean, again, a little dissimilar. People have very different Careful. worldviews around this. Yeah, remember, George controls everything and he's listening to us. So he, I, I've, I've criticized George on the Wikipedia page like on this. It's Black Wednesday, right? He did something that he's, he's sold the pound short. This is he, yeah. what he just broke the. The, the back of, I forget. Broke the Bank, yeah, of, broke the bank of England. Yeah, broke the Bank of England. the Bank of England. So, yeah. So, all right. I'm going to leave you with one thing. Um, I know we've got to hop. No, no, I'm going to leave you with this. Uh, it's making the rounds. And, and you and I have talked about this that, you know, when I first got into this in 2013, you know, I, I Googled it. And one of the things that comes up when you type in Satoshi Nakamoto is Intelligence Central. Because Nakamoto is the surname of families in the central provinces of China. Yeah. I mean, China, of Japan, sorry, Japan. And Satoshi means intelligence. Mike, that's way too close to CIA, NSA. Well, now this week, this new thing's going around. Tatsuki Okamoto, the director of cryptography at NTT, is... Uh, cited in a paper written in 1996 by the NSA talking about uh, creating a mine through electronic uh, cash. Just something to think about for a while. So um, to your point, if, if your goal were to destroy um, and, and look, what the thing that, that got me nervous about that was, wait a second, what if, what if that was, what if there's a back door and what if the whole point was to take this rapidly failing currency, the dollar and get everybody to convert it into this really cool thing that we control. And now this guy's named Tatsuki Okamoto. I mean, really? That's interesting. So. Yeah. It's look, and and I'll just end this by saying I know people get really upset about this stuff. I also have been within the the realm of you know I've been in crypto for six years now, and I do get frustrated. It's it's impossible not to when you've explained the same line of reasoning to people that have unintelligent attacks. I I think this is this you can say is is really coming from a place of like I really have a vested interest in wanting this problem to get solved. I'm not mm -hmm. attacking Bitcoin here. I, but I think it's important to look, guys. If we can't question stuff, what are we? What are we doing here? So dialogue and debate in search of truth. So is all there is. Listening, Mike. I mean, or, yeah. The idea just, that you can't have dialogue and debate is insane. 
And the, yeah. the fact that you could say something that someone might disagree with and say, well, then you're dead to me. Really? <laughs> it's that simple? Come on. So this is, this just, is the conversation we have to have. We have to yeah. have. And the, and the last thing, just to just like the people who say the transactions are going to go up. Could some, so if you look at a chart, I couldn't find one in time, but transactions have been steady to down for a really long time. And the meme of HODL is not good for transactions. You, if you have a currency that you are just, look, I've had my Bitcoin for a while. I'll like buy more every now and again. And then it just sits there. It doesn't move. I'm not no, generating Mark, any transaction value for the network. The maxis have this, this problem. And you know who I'm talking to. The maxis have this problem. If you believe, if you really believe that the only use of Bitcoin is HODL and put it on a thumb drive and bury it in your backyard, we're done. We can all go home and do other stuff. We have that. I agree. It's called gold. And gold is better because it doesn't deteriorate when you bury it in the ground, whereas your hard drive will. So um, I, that's not the only use case of the greatest money ever invented in the history of mankind. I believe this is the future of money. Um, a scientific American put it on the cover uh, three years ago. Mm. So um, this is real. And, it's, and it is better technology. And look, 2024 hasn't even happened yet. You know, 54, 68, 82, 96, 2010, 2024. This evolution of computing power is coming. It's not that it already happened. And I had like the most fun, as, as much as I love this, this is the best hour of my week, as much as I love this, I had the best experience of my podcasting career last night. I got to talk to Tim Draper for an hour. I know, no, no, I, I know, I know, I know, I know. I, I mean, this consistently is, I said, it is the best hour of my week, but I'm a huge Tim Draper fanboy. I've been invested with him for 30 years. I, I think he's, he's a seer. I mean, he's just one of the great investors of all time. And I got to hear the whole, he's a fourth, I mean, he's a third generation and his kids are fourth generation venture capitalists. And, you know, his grandfather was General Draper who, who literally did the Marshall Plan. 